totally in, totally in. Don't worry about this. Dirt, uh, Dirt is my producer. He he writes these things up. So right. I'm I'm actually more intrigued about. Um, I think your book is the antidote. The Live Load Lies is the antidote to uh, to this, which is freaking oh, thanks, awesome. Man. It's oh, thanks. Awesome. That's what, exactly what it is. <laughs> and uh, I don't know if we're recording right now. It's seriously, dude. It's great. Oh, thanks, man. Welcome to the aggressive life. You know, the aggressive life. We want to push you. We want to push you in a bunch of different ways. And one of the, one of the ways that I want to push you is a way that, uh, oh, what, what should I say? One of the ways I've not wanted to push us all that much on is intellectual ideas. I've not wanted to push us on our thinking because the aggressive life is about our doing. It's about our acting. It's not about our thinking. So simply having another podcast says, ooh, interesting thoughts that I might think about. Ooh, that sounded interesting. Ooh, that sounded fascinating. My day job is a pastor, and I just used to be in the slavery of teaching in an environment where if I didn't say something new that someone hadn't heard, if I didn't define a a Hebrew word or a Greek word in a way that someone hadn't heard or I hadn't dropped some theological phrase, if I, if I didn't do something that was quote-unquote deep, then I wasn't accepted. So in my early days, I was constantly trying to cater to that crowd. And I've come to the place where I'm like, nah, not catering to that crowd. If you want new, interesting thoughts, go read a phone book. There's a bunch of names in there that you don't know. But having said that, I want us to be a little aggressive today on our thinking because our thinking actually informs our actions. And I will be a bit aggressive today because I think you're going to hear some things and be forced to think about some things that you haven't before and that you might not like and that might be incredibly helpful. But I'll tell you, the thinking behind what's happening in culture right now around how we discern truth, how we discern spiritual truth, that thinking is permeating everywhere. And whether you like it or not, it's affecting the way you live your life. And whether you like it or not, it's affecting what you think of God, whether you like it or not. Unless you're putting aggressive movement and leaning up against it the opposite way, you are following the path of everybody else in culture in basic spiritual beliefs, whether they're Christian, Buddhist, or whatever. You're following that path. Just like we've learned in the aggressive life, if everyone's doing it, it's probably passive and you're probably going down the wrong road. Aggression is about turning in the opposite direction, going the different way where the stream is running into your face. That's what happens whenever you take control of your life, and that's what we're talking about today. Now, who I got with us today, you want me to stop talking as fast as possible because you want to hear this guy. In fact, you might have found out about him, and you're just jealous that I have him on video. I can see his beautiful face right now. I have with me today John Mark... Comer, he is, he is an impressive, impressive watches. Hello. How are you, John Mark? How's it going? I'm doing great, Brian. I'm already having a good time just listening. <laughs> oh, you're you too know, nice. You, in your intro, I just kept thinking about the philosopher Dallas Willard's line, we all live at the mercy of our ideas. 
And nowhere is this more true than our ideas about God. I mean, I would argue, I have a whole book about this that I wrote years ago, but at some point you can trace almost every human behavior or belief back to a person's view of God, even if it's an atheist and their view of God is there is no God. And so they might not call it God, but whatever is ultimate, whether that be Darwin's theory or whatever. So man, like these ideas, they're not just theory. They are literally the mental maps by which we navigate reality and they matter. We're talking today to a man who comes from the future, at least those of us who live east, (laughs) those of us who live east of the- That's like my line when I talk to people from New Zealand and they're like a day in the future. I'm like, hey, you're calling me from the future. Well, you do. If you live east of the Mississippi River or even east of Denver, uh, John Mark lives in Portland, Oregon. So you've come, you're, you're coming from the future. Portland is where most of the country is going. To just describe what's Portland like? What's it like to have a church in Portland? Well, yeah, I mean, I, well, the first disclaimer I would say is if, it, if, we, if I have learned anything in the last couple of years since the election of President Donald Trump or former President Donald Trump, it's that Portland is a future, not the future. Mm. And um, I think one of the reasons there was such outrage through 2020 and starting in 2016 with the election of former President Trump was because if you live in a progressive city, if you're in Portland or San Francisco or LA or New York, the progressive mindset is built in literally to that word, progressive. It's an evolutionary, an optimistic and evolutionary view of human history that says humanity is evolving toward this higher level of consciousness where eventually through science and reason and politics and technology, we will shred the constraints of religion and superstition and tradition which have held human human beings back from flourishing and freedom and equality. And we will usher in a kind of socialist utopia without God, a kind of kingdom of God without the king, where we get the peace and the justice and the shalom of the Christian vision, but we can do whatever the heck we want, sleep with whoever we want, buy whatever we want, do whatever we want, where we get to be king, not where we get to be subjects of of the king. That's kind of the progressive worldview. So built in even to that title progressive is the um, very pretentious, very elitist assumption that if you're a progressive, you are the intellectual, moral, and cultural leaders of our culture. And anyone who is, quote, conservative is, you know, progressive language would be behind on the wrong side of history, which is there's so much built into that cliche. Um, You're behind on the evolutionary arc. We're ahead on the evolutionary arc. Um, The problem with that interpretation of reality, and that is an interpretation. That's a dogma. It's a doctrine. That's a faith. That's a quasi-religion. It's not based on science. It's 120% not based on history and or on data. The problem with that is um, <laughs> the last four or five years have shown us that there's a whole bunch of people who have seen where the progressive world is going and they don't want in, they're out. You know, arguably, you know, our city right now still feels like a dystopian wasteland. I mean, the, the, the level of houselessness, of mental illness, the depression, the anxiety, the loneliness, the actual play out of the sexual revolution, when you're actually living in it on the street, it is the opposite of utopian, it is dystopian. 
And um, so there's a great pain. And it's honestly, I think the best case against progressivism is progressive cities. <laughs> Go to the urban centers of Portland or LA and, and look past the Instagram veneer of like, we have the best coffee and food in the world and we got cool street art and our architecture is way cooler than middle America. But if you look past all of that to actually the people and the social context and the emotional context, it is with each passing year less and less compelling. So what we've learned in the last five- You're saying that as a person who lives in Portland, loves Portland. Yeah, lives here, loves it. Have called, uh, yeah, I'm I'm called here. Um, Yeah, this is not like an angry critique. This is just an honest appraisal of where I live. And um, this this is not utopia and it is not moving toward utopia. It is a place full of anger, fear, mental illness, acute loneliness, sexuality without boundaries that is wreaking havoc in people's health and inner lives, confusion, meaninglessness. I mean, and great coffee and good food and, you know, great bike paths. Like there's some wonderful urban planning and some great, there's some great things about the city that we really celebrate. But I think the last five years have shown us There's a whole bunch of people that are saying that's not the future. And honestly, my main takeaway from the presidency of Donald Trump was this is what secularism looks like on the right. So in my mind, secularism is more of a leftist phenomenon, but now I have a a better handle on this is what secularization looks like on the right. And both the right and the left will, will keep the language of God around a little bit and even Jesus around a little bit mostly as a mask to cover up their anti-God and anti-Jesus ideologies and agendas because there's still just a little bit of cultural capital. If you can get Jesus on your side, you can kind of baptize your thing. Portland is the least religious city in America, not just least Christian, least religious. So it is, you know, the running joke is there are more dogs here than Christians, which I think is statistically 100% true, but there are a lot of dogs here in our defense. Yeah. You and the good news is the church is thriving here. Uh, not just ours, but the, the church of Jesus in Portland is thriving. Oh, why do you say that? You know, by what, by I, what it, measure? I would imagine just by metrics of, you know, health um, in the sense of kind of New Testament definitions of health, you know, resiliency of discipleship, commitment to orthodoxy, you know, reproduction, level of community commitment. You know, what you get, the more Christianized a culture is, you know, there's good things and bad things about that. The good thing is it, it pushes Christian values more into the public sphere, and particularly as a parent raising three kids like that. Uh, I, I have a bit of nostalgia in my mind for the Christendom, you know, kind of moment. Um, the downside is this also pushes worldly values into the church. So in those moments, your major problem is kind of compromise, complicity in the church, or just apathy, you know, a lot of like scandals of leaders because leaders often get into church leadership because there's power to be had or money to be had or some version of success to be had. When that goes away, as it has in a Portland, and I'm guessing where you're at too, where all of the cultural pressure now is against the church and against you following Jesus, and, you know, there's a lot of talk about tolerance, but, you know, only if you keep your Christian thing to be a very private, very therapeutic thing that you just completely wall off from the rest of your life, which basically puts you at odds with the vision of teachings of Jesus, then, um, you know, there's talk about tolerance, but really there's a rising hostility toward anything resembling Christian orthodoxy. The upside to that is it, it tends to breed a much smaller but healthier, more resilient, more um, aggressive in your language, in the positive sense of that word, church. It's almost like, 
you know, why is the best wine in America grown in Napa, Napa Valley? It's because it's like the harsh climate means that like only the, these grapes have to dig down like below the surface to get water. And the grapes are smaller, but they're like just packed with flavor. So I think the church here is a lot smaller, but it has this like robustness to it. Boy, you're putting your finger on, on a lot of stuff that's very freaky and, and, and completely true. I feel this in Cincinnati um, as, you know, the, the, the largest church in the region is what's really difficult is I want to disciple our folks. I want to take folks into a deeper life. I want people to look at issues, look at things from a biblical lens and from a Christian worldview, but it's really hard to do that because everyone thinks I'm trying to make some political statement. It's increasingly hard just to be able to disciple people because if you're not towing the line on what's ideologically correct, then you're, you're a hater. There's no deviance. You have to completely accept the entire paradigm or you are a bigot or you're a hater. And this is true, both the left and the right, but it's more true of the left, honestly. And the larger the, the larger the church, the, the larger the target on your back is. You know what I mean? So I feel for you, Brian. Man, the call on a leader like you is an extraordinary level of courage. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know about that. I'm just playing the cards that have been dealt me. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, 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 and frequently they're not, very, they're not cards that I like. You mentioned wrong side of history. I get that one all the time. Why is that, why is that statement a fallacy? Well, I mean, first off, because it presumes to know the future. And uh, we don't know the future. Um, I I really do not. Again, the progressive mindset is that the world's going to evolve toward this progressive vision where there's no more. If you actually study the elites behind progressivism and secularism, where there's literally no more marriage, no more even male-female binary, no more monogamy, uh, like it's this very socialist, you know, kind of moment. That's the future where we solve anxiety and mental health and depression, which has been caused by so much of this social and moral disruption with just pills and the right technology and mindfulness apps. That's the vision of the future. So you don't know if future is going there. There, are, There is an extraordinary number of people around the world who are saying no to that vision. And so the progressive backlash is, well, that's because they're bigots or they're racist or whatever, you know? And and that is just emotionally manipulative, intellectually lazy reasoning. These are some of the things that are causing many people to not lose their faith, but deconstruct their faith. It used to be in the old days when somebody would not believe in God anymore, whatever form their God was, you and I are Christians, so we'll just use the Christian form of God. If someone doesn't, you know, believe in God anymore, they just kind of quietly go away or they, yes. you know, and they live their life differently. Uh, yeah. It doesn't it work that way. It was, it was, yeah. It's always been sad, um, but it's kind of been amped up now to where you don't just kind of slip into another way of life. Now you try to amass a movement and try to try to suck as many people out of out of Christianity yes. as you possibly Tear can. Tear down the house that you were formerly in. Right. Yeah. I mean, you're you're in the heart of that, right? I mean, you're what what are you what are you seeing in the world of deconstruction? How would you how would you tutor those of us who were wrestling with those ideas, or even 
on the on the verge of losing whatever fragile faith that we that we have. Yeah. Well, I mean, gosh, there's lots we can explore there, Brian. You know, I think a good starting place is just to stop and ask, why is someone deconstructing? Um, or why are you deconstructing or whatever? And uh, in order to kind of create, I think, the right emotional or relational or intellectual posture toward it. So this is not an attempt to pigeonhole people into five groups, but there are about five kind of common themes that I just see at, at a pastoral level for kind of why, why people deconstruct. Um, and let me just go through them really fast. And as you're listening, you may find or plot yourself or somebody you love into one or a couple of these categories. I thought there was but, only one. I won't tell you what mine is, but I'm going to hear your five. I'm sure it's in there. It sums them up. Go ahead. Give it to us. Okay, great. Um, so the top reason, and these are not necessarily in order, but the number one reason for sure is church hurt or family of origin pain. Uh, I, I mean, I, I don't know that I've, I think I've yet to meet somebody deconstructing their faith that doesn't have some painful experience tied to uh, church or to their family of origin. So that could be, you know, uh, a mother or father who just were dysfunctional or abusive or emotionally manipulative, who are ardent churchgoers, or it could have been like a really bad experience in church, or there's a famous deconstructionist who I won't name, who I've been just quite angry with frequently and like struggling in my heart because I think this person is doing great damage to people's faith. And then I just found out recently that this person's father, who was a pastor, carried on a multi-year affair with his babysitter when they were a little when he was a little kid and then got fired and the new pastor came in and that person had an affair and then a new pastor came in and that person had an affair. So I mean what would that do to you if you're growing up your dad is sleeping with your babysitter as the pastor of your church then he's fired then two more times I mean how would you ever walk out of that not traumatized at some level and thinking what the heck is wrong with the, you know, the patriarchy or Christianity or Christian sex ethics or whatever it is, you know? So church hurt or family of origin hurt. That's, that's the, the number one, and I would say the primary reason. Um, number two would be poor teaching. The church, there's a lot of bad teaching in evangelicalism. I, I, I say that with, with humility, not like pretentiousness, but man, I just, there's a fair bit of, of wonky thinking that comes out of pulpits. And the church has a, a teaching function. And so often people who have grown up in or been around poor teaching or just through the internet see people that call themselves Christians or whatever say just ridiculous things online. And of course, the loudest, lamest voices get the most attention online. Um, you know, often people will deconstruct and reject the faith. And what they're actually rejecting is bad teaching that has corrupted the faith. But in their mind, those things are fused together, especially in evangelicalism, where there's very little humility around the difference between the text and our interpretation of the text when it comes to scripture. So poor teaching is the second reason. Third, teach, third reason would be there are some people who just, I think, put bluntly, want to sin. Um, and so deconstruction is basically an intellectual uh, kind of cover for them to go through a divorce or sleep with their girlfriend or, or whatever the thing is. I mean, the number of people that deconstruct and then you find out they're also divorcing their spouse. 
I mean, it's just staggering. It's, I mean, it's a cliche, yep, right. you know, and not, not because right. it's not tender for them. I mean, because it's so common. It's like, oh, I deconstructed and, and I got a divorce three months later. I mean, that's so common. Or I started living with my girlfriend and then I deconstructed my faith. Those two things are not separate things. Those two things are intimately combined. Um, the fourth reason would be that I see a lot would be like, you know, that story with Jesus and the Pharisees where John writes about how there were many Pharisees that believed in him, but they refused to speak up because they didn't want to be put out of the synagogue. And then John has that line, because they love the praise of people more than the praise of God. And you know, as culture is increasingly hostile toward Christian identity and Christian you know, theology and ethics, um, it's an increasingly unpopular, you know, positions to hold to. There's extraordinary pressure um, on Christians to basically assimilate to the world and compromise their convictions. And a lot of people, and especially personality, and this is a struggle for all people, but for certain personality types, I have a lot of compassion. Certain personality types, uh, not pleasing other people is, is like the hardest possible thing for them. So if you're an Enneagram 8 or whatever, this is like not a big deal for you. But for other personality types, you know, oh my gosh, to like have to take that unpopular position, in particular if you work at, you know, like a, a, in a corporate environment, this extraordinary pressure, literally from your job, from your, like your place in a company or in a career, for you to get on board with all sorts of secular ideologies. And, and so there's just extraordinary pressure on people. And some people, it's just, it's too much. They have to capitulate or compromise. And then the final reason that is less, you know, popular or, or might rub people the wrong way, I think is just demonic assault. You know, Jesus has that line to Peter where he says, Peter, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not be fail, may not fail. And there are some people that I think experience like a demonic assault upon their faith. So those five things, which by the way, are not even original to me. That's based on some of the thinking of friends I have, like Joshua Ryan Butler, who said some great things about this, and my friend John Tyson in New York, who's excellent on this. So none of those five things are even original to me. But And those five things are not usually exclusive. So it could be like church hurt and demonic assault, or it could be poor teaching and they don't want to be unpopular. You know, It could be any combination of these or all five of these. Yeah. But I think why that's important is it because it changes your relational posture towards somebody who is deconstructing. If it's because they were sexually assaulted by their youth pastor, you should deal with that yeah. very differently than if it's because they just want to sin and they have a hard heart, you know? Right. So, so what I've seen on that, I, I, I don't know, you tell me, is this, is this a yeah, sixth one? one or is this an overarching? I'm not sure. Mine, uh, what I've seen is my life isn't working. It's that simple. Mm. Or I just don't like my life. So I don't, I don't find people deconstructing who are happy with their income and happy with, uh, happy with their relationships. I don't, I don't see people deconstructing who, um, who don't have, um, deep baggage and pain and hurt and all that kind of stuff. I, 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 I agree with all those things, but I just see, man, my, my life just doesn't work. And sometimes it's, uh, and therefore, I can't. I can't buy into six thousand years old. The the Earth is, and that's it. It's not six thousand years old, so I'm done. My life isn't working because I'm aligning with a religion that is just really messed up. Sometimes for me, I, I I think it looks like that. What do you think to that? 
Yeah, I mean, you could argue that goes under poor teaching, but but or but I think a sixth one is great. You know, I think because there's been so much poor teaching in late modern American church that has set people up with false expectations for life, that Jesus would just come to Jesus. It's a very low bar of entry. Just kind of slip your hand up, pray a prayer at the end of the sermon, and Jesus is going to make your life better. And it's, you know, hashtag the best is yet to come. That is a crisis of faith waiting to happen. You're not talking about Um, boring teaching. You're not talking about boring teaching. You're talking about teaching that doesn't have substance and isn't aligned with the timeless character of God. That's what you're talking about. No, no, I'm not remotely talking about uh, whether the teaching is boring or riveting. I'm talking about whether or not it sets up false expectations by basically just baptizing the American dream, saying, come to Jesus, he'll help you with Project Self, he'll help you pursue happiness even better, you know, you don't really have to do much, just kind of easy Belizeism, you know, Bonhoeffer called it cheap grace, slip your hand up. I mean, Jesus said this whole journey begins with death, with take up your cross. I mean, he was like almost anti-PR, like, are you sure you want to follow me? It's really hard and it ends in death. But there's life after that, but it ends you know, but that's not been the American church's model of evangelism has been so like, just slip your hand up, pray a prayer, come to Jesus. He'll make your life better. Best is yet to come. And, um, and then you have, you have strains of hyper Calvinism that interpret every single event in your life, no matter how traumatic as somehow the will of God for his glory and your good, which I do not think that is true or Christian orthodoxy or the teaching of scripture, but there are a lot of people that do think it is and teach it as so, man, you put those things together. And a lot of people are just like, this isn't working for me. How is this life, the sovereign will of God? My life is not trending up and to the right. This is not working for me. I have anxiety. I'm sad, da, 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 da. And I think some of that is just a setup for false expectations that, I mean, if you tell people that come to Jesus and the best is yet to come, I mean, that is a crisis of faith waiting to happen. God loves you. Because if you come to Jesus, often he'll make your life harder, (laughs) better, but harder. (laughs) Yeah, right. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And that's what all the martyrs learned when they were hung on crosses heading into Rome at the hand of Nero. God loves you. He has a wonderful plan of life that's only going to last about three more years until you die and smell (laughs) your burning flesh. Miserably, yes. (laughs) Yeah, people forget that the church, when it exploded in the Mediterranean world, was for three centuries, it was mostly a martyr movement. And yet people came to faith in Jesus by the millions, not in spite of the grave threat of death, should they, quote, convert, but because of it. There was something about this Jesus and this Jesus movement that was so radically countercultural that people were willing to risk death to become a part of it. Dude, I'm going through your book right now, Live No Lies. Seriously, dude, it's unfreaking believable. It's one of those rare books that I'm listening to on Audible and I bought it on Kindle because I'm going to go through it again. It's fantastic. It's, oh, dude. Thank you. Uh, I, I'm, I, I can't be more complimentary of it. I can't be more more of a salesman to anybody to check that, check that book out. And I want to talk about some of the things in that but first, I want to talk about you. Okay, talk about you. Let's talk about you. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm reading that and I'm going, this sounds really awkward, but I'm sh- I got to think you've thought about this. And I'd love to hear if you're going to get real and vulnerable with us here on The Aggressive Life. I think you're the, the next or the current generation of C.S. Lewis. I think that you are a thinker and a communicator 
that operates on a level of depth that is very needed and you're speaking with a level of clarity, understandability, and certainty on some things that others are not able to, not because they're afraid or we're afraid, but just you have a unique giftedness there. Do you feel that kind of call in your life? I, mean, I, I know I know you must have thought this in your private thoughts of private thoughts. Just be aggressive with me. Tell me. No, I've never thought I'm the next C.S. Lewis. Most definitely not. Um, you know, there are a few heroes of mine, the generation before me, some of whom are alive, some of whom have died, like Dallas Willard. I think of Tim Keller, who even though he's from a, a slightly different theological stream, I have just great respect for his mind and his humility and his faithfulness to Jesus. I think that a key part of even the pastoral role, and for sure I think my role, is what I would call cultural apologetics. So a lot of Christian apologetics is really good. This is not a slam on it at all, but it's kind of answering questions that only Christians are asking. And um, that, that sounds more negative than I mean it to be. We need people who are doing great intellectual proofs for the existence of God and dealing with Darwinian materialism and proof you know, for the historicity of the resurrection. But most of the questions that people around me in Portland are asking are not like, prove to me the resurrection of the dead. They're more like, how in the world is the Christian sex ethic not just oppression? Or how is any form of external authority not keeping me from becoming my true self? They're, they're, they have more to do with aesthetics, with emotion, with cultural sense about, sense, you know, sensibilities around what is good and beautiful and true. And so um, I think you know, the gift of Portland is a really hard place for me, honestly, for me to live and to follow Jesus. But the gift of being here is the pain of being here is I'm living in like this concentrated form, like the ideological nature of the city is staggering. Like you can't even drive through the city without just seeing ideological slogans, language, street art, parades, banners. I mean, just everywhere. It's like you're swimming, you know? And there's a pain to that, but there's a gift to that is it, it forces you to sharpen your thinking. And then you get to see the ideology played out in real time in the city around you, you know, in people and on the street. And so I, I definitely feel that part of my call, my call I think is more in the world of formation. And that's where, you know, C.S. Lewis was an apologist and I, I, I'm in a brilliant mind. I'm not that, but my heart is really discipleship formation. How do people grow and mature to become more like Jesus? And I think that the work of cultural apologetics is essential to that aim because most people are living with secular assumptions about what is good and beautiful and true that are holding them back from even going on the spiritual journey into healing and wholeness in Christ in the first place. Yeah, but Lewis was also dealing with intellectual things that the common person in England needed to hear. And those yes. happen to be some of those apologetic, those classical apologetical things you're yes. talking about. You're doing the same. You're dealing with the common classical intellectual struggles that the 
common man and woman in America needs to hear. And you're you're the best mm. voice going for some someone this stuff. So I, I know you don't I know you don't think I have a goal to be just like C.S. Lewis. I, I know that's not the case for starters. For starters, because I enjoy your books, I've never read a C.S. Lewis book I enjoyed. I know I'm going to lose my credentials <laughs> for it, except for maybe Lion Witch in the Wardrobe. I like that one, but the rest <laughs> the, the rest of them I I struggle. I really struggle with that. Just 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 not my just not my bag. Mm. I want to close with two books that your, your two most recent books that you have written give me give give us the uh the elevator pitch on both of on both those books they're actually quite different live no lies is um yes uh, it, uh the escape the the book name escape the me. ruthless elimination of, of hurry, hurry. Yes. yes so give us the uh, the the elevator pitch on both those books yeah, well, um, I mean, gosh, they if you pick them both up and don't know me, they're going to feel like very different books. I mean, they're both from me and from my brain and my heart. But really, in my again, my heart is formation. What I what I care about, what gets me out of bed in the morning is not leadership. It's not Sunday gatherings for the church. These are great things. What gets me out of bed is the formation of the human soul. How do we become people who have been pervaded by love through union with Jesus? Like that's the question for me. So the two major obstacles that I see as a pastor and in my own personal life that keep people from even going on the journey of formation to grow and mature and become who they are in God are one, hurry, busyness, overload, digital distraction, chronic you know, overactivity. On one hand, people are just too busy to have any kind of spiritual life at all. And then on the other hand are kind of secular assumptions about what's good and beautiful and true. Secular narratives that have co-opted people's thinking and deformed them away from the image of Jesus. So that's what these two books are. They're basically writing about the two things that I think keep people from the formation journey in Jesus. So the first book is built around this famous saying from Dallas Willard who said, uh, who called hurry the great enemy of spiritual life in our day and said you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. It's basically an entire book that is just a deep dive on that quote, that saying, the basic thesis is that hurry is incompatible with love. And if you wanna become a person of love, you have to radically alter the pace of your life to adopt that of Jesus. And there's no better kind of mentor in that than Jesus. So it is kind of a intro to spiritual formation book, masquerade, like sneaking into the Trojan horse of everybody's felt need, human, Christian or atheist or serious Christian or nominal Christian, we all have this felt need, almost all of us, of like, my life is just too chronically busy, overcommitted, I'm addicted to my phone, I'm escaping into Netflix, how do I get off the crazy train and experience something like the life of Jesus? And then, yeah, my most recent one is called Live No Lies, and it's about the role of, of ideas and of narratives and of assumptions about what's good and beautiful and true and, and how our, the human brain, there's a lot in this book, but the human brain has this capacity for imagination that's incredible. It's like all great human ingenuity has come from this, but it's also our Achilles heel because it, it, it empowers us to believe lies, untrue narratives that deform us. And when Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free, he was simultaneously saying that we're enslaved by lies, by false narratives, about by untrue mental maps to reality that just lead us to places of great human pain. So it's a deep exploration of kind of Jesus' teaching around truth and lies and the role they play through this ancient Christian paradigm of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Yeah, you make just a great statement for reframing spiritual war, spiritual battle. 
that the the tip of the spear is the lies that you believe or having the truth because yes. that's that's where but yeah very very compelling. All right, brother. Hey, is there anything else you want to talk about that I haven't asked you about or you haven't had a chance to talk about? No, it's my honor. Thanks for having me on. For the, I would just say for any of you interested in formation, I am in the process of starting a new nonprofit called Practicing the Way. We have a little landing page website app. You're welcome to visit, practicingtheway.org. Uh, and in the future, we'll be releasing a bunch of kind of formation resources for churches and small groups and people that really want to take the journey with Jesus seriously. And for those of you who are a part of my day job at Crossroads, we are working to get John Mark here at our church sometime in the future. So uh, I don't know when that's going to happen, but I know it's not going to happen unless I keep hounding you about it. So I will be <laughs> pounding you and I will get my way. I will. It's called aggressive. The aggressive. <laughs> hey, that's it. Hey, thanks, man. A huge blessing to us. Hey, whatever you learned here today, I hope you learned it. This is one of those ones where I'm not sure exactly what you're going to actually do. Maybe the thing you're going to do is just recommit yourself to thinking rigorously about things instead of just swallowing ideas as they come. But it's your life. It's your mind. Make sure you live it instead of somebody else living it for you. We'll see you next time on The Aggressive Life. Hey, thanks for listening. For all things aggressive living, why don't you head over to bryantome.com. Find my new book, Move, a guide to get up and go forward, as well as articles and much, much more. And no matter where you listen to podcasts, why don't you take a second and leave us a rating, leave us a review. It really, really helps us drive new listeners to the show. We want to help as many people as possible, just like we may have helped you. We want to help others. So why don't you help us out? And if you want to connect, find me on Instagram, at Brian Tome. Aggressive Life with Brian Tome is a production of Crossroads Church, Cincinnati, Ohio.